Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Areej Nord. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations. We'd also like to acknowledge Elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the lands you are hearing us from. On today's Women on the Line, we hear three short speeches from this year's Emerging Writers Festival's Amazing Babes. Amazing Babes is a space where women perform an ode to an amazing babe in their lives. We will hear excerpts from Paola Bala, Jasmeet Kaur Sahi and Susie Anderson's speeches today. First off, we hear from the amazing Paola Bala. Paola is a Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara woman and is an artist, curator, writer and lecturer based at Mondani Baluk Indigenous Academic Unit at Vic Uni. Acknowledge the beautiful Kulin country that we are on and uh, the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung peoples. Uh, this is my birthplace and I'm uh, very proud to be born in, in Footscray on this country. Um, it's also the birthplace of my children who are both amazing babes, Rosie Kilvert, who's in the front row here. Extraordinary makeup artist. Check her on Instagram. She's... <laughs> I'm such a proud mother. I love gassing her up every chance I get, because that's what you should do. <laughs> and, um, yeah, she's very talented. And my son, um, Caton, who just turned 13 on the weekend, uh, is... Um, having his own discovery of black music at the moment and uh, wants to be an MC and got his first little turntable. So I'm just loving what he's doing. And um, they both inspire me incredibly. So thanks for being here, Rosie. Uh, there are so many amazing babes that I could talk about. It's really hard to choose, actually, because I was raised by uh, an incredible number of them. Uh, but I think I'd be really... Um, disrespectful if I didn't bring it back to my mother uh, and and I do that because our relationship has not been a straightforward one like many of us we have very conflicted relationships with our mothers and if you've got an Aboriginal mother you know something you get taught something you get schooled every day you get told off when it's necessary and uh, you get the the life frightened out of you as well when it's necessary um, and my mother is the the great-granddaughter of Papa Mariah Day and the granddaughter of Nanny Nancy Day, who was one of the last speakers of the Wemba Wemba language. It's a very influential, powerful woman for me, great matriarch, sovereign women who never ceded their country and taught us to do the same. Uh, and my mother is the daughter of Rosie, who was an artist, who I named my daughter after, a poet, and uh, we lost her to breast cancer in 1992 when I was 19 years old. And I still miss her every single day. But her art informs me and her fight. Uh, she was slut-shamed once by a drunk cousin at a party and she picked up a poker at the side of the fire and clocked him at the side of the head with it. <laughs> so she taught me to never put up with shit. And nor did my mother. So my mother carries a bundi. So that's a big fighting club 
for non-Aboriginal people, for everybody else. It's a fighting club about this big, made out of solid redwood, and it's got a big bulbous end and a sharp point and then a handle. So my mother kept this with her at all times. She kept it under the seat of our Ford Fairmont that she had throughout the 1980s. Um, most of the time we didn't have any petrol in it and we had to push it. But it was ours and she got it because she won Tats Lotto. She won $12,000 in 1991 and that was like everything to us. And God bless her, she gave me $500 out of that and I went to Greville Street and I bought myself a pair of 501s. <laughs> Who remembers 501s in the 90s? <laughs> a belt and a beautiful white shirt with uh, roses embroidered all over it and I just thought I was eating a bit. My brother spent almost every dollar on a pair of Nike Air Jordans <laughs> with the pump <laughs> and one T-shirt for $500. But he was the best-dressed kid in a chuka for that whole summer. <laughs> he wore them till they fell apart and there was just like little puffs of smoke coming out of the pump. <laughs> but he rocked them hard. But my mother, um, you know, is a fighter and she still is. And uh, she's gone home to live um, in a little country town called Kyabram in the Goulburn Valley on Yorda country. And um, I don't just mean emotionally um, or figuratively that she is a fighter. She used that club in fights. She used it to drag my brother out of the milk bar when he was wagging school playing the pinnies. She snuck up behind him and grabbed the back of his shirt and hit him across the legs with that stick. It was in 1989. And she shamed him all the way back to that car. Um, he did go on to wag again, but not for a while. <laughs> um, and she also took on white women when it was necessary, you know, because she had a lot of really good white female friends, but um, there are times when their indifference was quite cruel and when they didn't see that they needed to pull back. And one of these times, we're waiting for fish and chips on pension day. If you grow up with a poor single mother, pension day is everything. It's the day you get fish and chips, you hire videos. We didn't even have a video machine, so we would hire the machine from the video shop for $10 and we would have it from Friday to Sunday. So that was our special times. And she'd get us blocks of Cadbury chocolate and fish and chips. So we're waiting for these fish and chips with my other auntie in the car, five kids in the back of the Ford Fairmont. And uh, my brother starts walking around this old planter box. And this is at the Crossanvale shops in Echuca, and we lived in the housing commission area. So it was only black fellas and poor white fellas up there. And we're waiting for our fish and chips. And my brother starts walking around around this planter. And there's nothing in the planter but dirt and a few weeds. And this white woman comes out and she starts yelling at my brother to get off her that he was destroying all the plants in it. So my mother gets out of the car and she chases this woman. <laughs> and the woman started to run around the planter. <laughs> my brother's in the middle of the planter. The white woman goes around. My brother goes around. <laughs> my mum goes around. My auntie gets out and they start going around. It's like a whirlwind of black women, of anger. <laughs> you know, you touch our kids, you touch us. Uh, we chased her in her car. She ran to her car in the car park. We then jumped back in the car. <laughs> I'm begging mum not to do it and we're driving laps through the car park. <laughs> um, we followed this woman back to her house and she just made it up her driveway into her front door and slammed the door shut before my mother got to her. <laughs> but these are the kind of things that, you know, an amazing babe, black mother will do for you. She will fight for you. Um, and the other thing she did was survive. You know, she had to survive a lot of really intense things, um, things that are her story that I won't speak about, but that taught me how to survive and things that she took time um, to be able to tell me. She couldn't tell me straight away because they're things that bring on shame. But the things that she did to help us su survive were that she was a shearer's cook, a hotel cook, a riverboat chef, 
she became a masseuse. She was the first drag artist that I ever saw. She used to embody a man, an Italian man, um, to <laughs> entertain Aboriginal women in Echuca um, at country balls. Um, Rosie, under that seat in my basket, there are a couple of pictures. Would you mind passing them around? Just so you can get a visual of my mum. I'll, I'll pass these around. And I've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, but I want you to see her. Uh, yeah, so she's a drag artist. She picked tomatoes, she picked potatoes. She would come home with dirt under her fingernails, all over her face, bone tired, exhausted. She would drag herself into the house and have a hot bath to wash the dirt off and her car would be coated in dust. She was a waitress at the pub until she couldn't stand being groped anymore by the white drunk man and she told the boss to shove the job up their ass. She was a poet and she was a letter writer and she was an activist. She took on the whole town of Echuca in 1991 for racism when um, the hotel she was cooking in I told her to keep out the abo that was my grandmother who was visiting us at the time. And so mum called up, after telling the publican to shove it up his ass, she called up SBS, Channel 7, ABC, um, can't remember, the regional television stations, stations up there at the time. Um, and I ended up showing SBS around town and doing vox pops with white people. And they would say things like, we're not racist. We have abos that live next door to us. And as long as they behave themselves like white people, it's okay. So my mum featured in The Age, you know, at that time. And she was just an absolute hero to me. And we've had our differences. But, you know, she's fucking staunch. And she's so proud. And uh, she taught me how to rock and roll dance. She was a rodeo queen. Um, she was a beauty queen, as you'll see from the picture. She was Miss Teenage Aboriginal uh, Achuka uh, Queen at the Beauty Quest in 1968. And the prize for them, for her at the time, was a box of groceries and a watch and a sash. And the dress that she wore, my grandmother made from a, a pattern that she sent away for to the city. Um, she's an all-round babe and she's an absolute inspiration to me. And um, she's also been a stand-up comedian, amongst other things. Um, but I really want to thank her. I wish she was here tonight because she's a bit crook with diabetes and she can't always be, be around for these things, but she's always with me in spirit and I love her dearly. Her name is Margie Tang and she's an absolute babe, so thank you. Community Radio around Australia, you're listening to some excerpts from this year's Amazing Babes event at the Emerging Writers Festival. We just heard from the incredible Paola Bala, and next up we hear from Jasmeet Kaur Sahi. Jasmeet is a Melbourne-based writer and producer. She moved from India to Melbourne five years ago to study creative writing. Earlier this year, she produced a Melbourne version of the Jaipur Literature Festival. Tonight we are gathered on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge my ignorance of the depth of this fact at the time of applying for a student visa to come and study here. This ignorance is on me. Until I arrived here, I had no idea of what it means to learn, to live without context. But by no means am I equating my experience. I'm only finding ways to understand. This land that I live on and work on is a land that was stolen from the people who lived on it. It's a land um, I thrive on. And these people, who were the 100% population of this land, are now less than 3%. And that means something. 
um, those numbers mean something. By migrating here, I recognize my part in the coiled scheme that keeps that percentage so low. I accept my debt to those past, present, and future. I promise to not forget this. And in doing this, I acknowledge the power and privilege of my position in even being able to say these words. Um, lately, I have been thinking a lot about elders, um, especially elders who are women. Um, with this, I've had thoughts about lineage and how we are formed from these women elders, quite literally by the process of birth. How much of their stories shape us, but how much of those stories do we know? In my mother tongue, Punjabi, women elders are called Biji, Beji, or Naniji, or Dadiji, um, which means paternal or maternal grandmother. The G in the end, which is a J and I, is a term of endearance or respect. Isn't it wonderful for a language to have, to accommodate for a word of respect in it? I often wonder if the English language has such a term. Um, I call my grandmothers Nanima and Dadima. Um, and again, it's the wonder of the language to be able to attach Ma at the end for a female relation so that you can feel closer to them. Now, before I launch into what I came prepared with today, I, I want to give you a brief context of what's to come. So I'm not very sure of how many of you are aware, but can I have a show of hands of how many of you have heard of the partition of India in 1947, August? Okay, a fair bit. Um, I'll just briefly. So India was part of the British Empire for nearly 200 years before the British had their fill. Um, and decided to go back to where they came from, or something like that. Um, but before they left, like all good people, they left us with a gift. They split the country into two, roughly, and I mean very roughly. Divided on one side with the Muslim-rich Pakistan, and on the other side with the Hindu-rich India. But these two nations had millions of minorities, like Christians and Parsis and Sikhs and Buddhists um, and so on, um, who had to kind of, in a matter of two days, decide which side they wanted to live on. Um, the partition of India in August 1947 displaced nearly 14 million people. Almost 2 million people died as a result of disease, sectarian violence of the most horrific kind, and starvation while crossing the border uh, as refugees seeking shelter. My families, my grandparents were for those people. My grandmother's, my, my dadima, my father's mother, um, was in her teens. And my mother's mother, my nanima, uh, was eight at the time. And they lived in Pakistan at that time and had to cross to India. In my few years that I've been trying to write, I have often gone back to the experiences and lives of my grandmothers and my, my grandparents. Um, I don't know if it's an atavistic sense of responsibility to be a filial scribe or um, if, it's, if it's an urge to root my history, but these are difficult pasts, um, pasts that bring up pain and memories um, of a time that my grandmothers don't necessarily want to remember. Um, and they have chosen to press down their histories so that the foundation of their future generations 
is stable and compact and creaseless. They have looked ahead and moved on. Um, I haven't spent much time growing up around them. My relationship was via school holidays, and I never lived in the same city with them. But in the past decade or so, I've wanted to ask them about their pasts. And both my grandfathers um, at the time um, had lots to tell who they were and you know, their childhood pranks and um, who they were as young men and what happened to them post-partition. But as always, it is the stories of the women that remain in the corners of the house like cobwebs, present and untouched. So here I am, trying to unearth some answers. Tell me how did you feel when you heard the news? You didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. You were already removed. Were you thinking of the Chinese honeysuckle in your garden? It would have been in full bloom in August when the country was cut into two. It would have turned that deep pink, rani pink, ready to fall on the ground with the first wash of rain. Is this why you planted it in the new home that you built? But the petals, they shed a lot, right? That, and that made you upset at the mess that that made. So is this why you cut it away again? The mess of the Rani pinks every monsoon season? Or was it something else? Every memory has its thorns. 70 years ago, you were eight. Tell me how did it feel when you walked behind your mother, carrying smoked chanas and rice through the thick snow for more than a week. You were eight. Could you feel your feet? Were you scared? How cold was it? Did you remember to wear the correct shoes? Did you have the correct shoes? How high was the snow? Was it slushy and soft? Or hard and unrelenting? Like the men who divided the nation? Did you think of them as you made your way into a country that you did not know when you were eight? You see, her story is history, his story, and our story, a collective story. Her story is history, but history is not her story. His, him, he, why? Even though when we all know that we come from her, him also, but shaped and formed in her, by her, of her, from her, but democracy is masculine. It needs divided countries and split homes. When men make decisions that a land can't be won and cut her up into two, so the people can live full in their faith, that's history, his story. Because if it were hers, it would be different. Until the songs of our elders have not been sung out of our bones, new songs will not birth well. I don't have the answers to these questions. 
I don't know if I ever will, but I know resilience is my lineage. Both my grandmothers don't know that I'm writing to them in this way. One of them is mourning the loss of her partner of 67 years, and the other, who crossed the border to India, aged eight through thick snow, has just had both her knees operated. Please send them your love Sahi and for pray Amazing Babes 2017. This is Women day. on the Line. Next up, we hear from Susie Anderson. Susie is a Wagaya writer and producer based in Sydney. In 2016, she completed a residency at the BAMP Centre in Canada and was a Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow in 2014. Hello everyone. I've just come from Dark Mofo in Hobart and I'm feeling very fragile. That's cool that you find that funny, but I'm living this. So that's why I'm just, you know, I'm just going to take it slow. So I was going to tell you guys about a trip I went um, I went on with my sister to Canberra. We went down there last year to listen to recordings of our great-grandmother talking in our language, Wakaya. So this piece was, it was going to start like this. We, we always knew Auntie Eleanor talked about pelicans. She and her sister, my auntie Stella, they collected them and they were in this competition against each other to see who could have the biggest collection. The same way me and Alice were about pandas. But it wasn't until 18 that I understood why they collected them and why it was such a fierce competition. They're our totem. We're lake people from northwest Victoria. Maybe that's why I've always felt connected to the open space of Horsham, the dry flat plains of western Victoria where I grew up. But far from home that morning in October, I got up and went for my usual run, occasional, around <laughs> Sydney Park. And I wasn't that surprised to see a pelican there that morning. Sometimes he's sitting there by himself on top of the wetlands thing. He's like this really fat guy because he's a city pelican. <laughs> and he's presiding over the, the wetlands there. I was going to go on about this and how we drove down there in my housemate David's car that he actually didn't want me to borrow but said it was fine and then later was like, meh. <laughs> Look, David's a weird guy. So we're three hours down the Hume to the nation's capital, past those lakes, those dry lakes and those mountains that shoulder the city as you come in. And we, were, we went into IATSIS, which is the, um, the archives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander studies. Um, we were led into this room by a guy called Tyson and he had all these photos and um, articles that we'd asked for because you can get when, when you have Indigenous... Um, lineage, you can get these materials returned to you from the archives. And um, we read these amazing articles by my uncle David, who I never really knew because he died when I was young, after my dad. Um, and we also had these recordings of my great-grandmother, Jessie Pepper, um, and we heard our language spoken. And it was amazing. And she had this really strange mid-Australian, mid-century Australian voice. And she called her dad Daddy, which is slightly bizarre. And she told in the recordings, which are, she spoke to this Swiss researcher 
Louise Herkus, um, who was doing a study of Western Victorian languages. And um, this researcher visited her over a number of years collecting language and she told her all these stories, my great-grandmother, uh, about these spirit men who walked across the dry plains, um, who were dangerous if you came across them, not like bunyips, but something from the drylands. So that was where I was going to go with this story on, on about the language, but I'm going to weave in some other stuff because I've been in Tassie and it's, it's a whole thing. There's this whole thing going on down there that maybe you know about, maybe it's, it's one of those things that we all kind of know and it happened in Victoria across Australia. Um, these places, they're formerly country of lake people like myself, um, pelican men and shadowy creatures. But in the early 1800s, British settlers were given Tasmanian land. It was stolen, as we know. They proudly named the properties after where they came from in England. Tasmania split up into all the counties of England. And they called this clearing of the land, it's known now as the Black War. The population of Palawa, Trulaway, all that mob reduced from thousands down to as low as... 800, 300, you know, the figures vary, but they, the papers reported it as extinct. Like, it's gross, it's awful. So when I was in Hobart for this festival where it's this coming together of people, it's ritualistic, you know, there's fires burning across the whole CBD, like, it's pretty mad. There's no OH&S going on there. <laughs> um, yeah. But look, no, I didn't get hurt. I mean, I've hangover for five days, but it's my own fault. Um, so I went down to the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery to sort of unpick, unpick these, like, complex European Aboriginal histories that are woven in. Because when you go to Tassie, it's all about the cheese and the wine. And you get carried away and you want to know where the chocolate factory is and all that, you know, the oldest bridge in Australia. But I went there as a kind of mourning because these objects, they were peoples. They're, they're stunning. Like, if you see the weaving that these, this mob could do, it's, and these beautiful kelp sort of things that they carried, water, food, peop, you know, children in, it's stunning. So I'm also tied to this story of Tasmania by the artist Julie Goff. She's true all the way. She makes this resistance kind of artwork um, where she films, she primarily works with film these days and she, for a work I saw her make recently um, at, at the MCA in Sydney where I work, um, she made this work where she filmed the, these properties that the Tasmanian uh, colonists were given. So just these kind of um, stately, you know, properties, kind of concrete fences leading you into these giant mansion properties. And she's drawing attention to the fact that these people, not that long ago, 1830s, these names, still so prominent in Tasmania today, were responsible She's gathering those names. The work is called The Gathering. She has all of the colonists' names screening across this video work, um, calling them out, naming them and shaming them. 
So this is all on my mind when I'm walking around seeing all this artwork, seeing and hearing these um, performances of, you know, a, a German artist coming down and, like, chopping up a bull and the protests going on about that, the bloodshed that is now abhorrent to Tasmanians who live on land where much blood was shed. God, it's embarrassing for them. So I couldn't quite um, un disconnect these things going on in my mind because in Western Victoria, where I'm from, where my ancestors came from, that's what happened there. These massacres, we all know about them. And I was wondering what it meant that on that day that when we went down to Canberra, I saw that pelican on the, on the wetlands because as our totem, we have, we have understanding of what it means when there's a pelican around. So I asked my auntie Noor, my Eleanor, we call her auntie Noor, um, what it means when you see them around. And she said, like I just Facebooked her the other day. It's like, she's really good on Facebook. You know how like some of your relatives, but auntie Noor, she's on top of it. Um, and she said that Auntie Stella, her sister, thinks that when there's one, it's a bad sign. When there's lots, it's good. But she said, we see them as our ancestors and they make us happy. So, I mean, these are fragmentary thoughts. They may not mean anything to you. But I, I see, I always notice pelicans and I felt it's so significant when you, you see them that something happens. You know, it resonates. So trying to bring all these myriad thoughts together. Someone's just followed me on Twitter. <laughs> it's Azri Zakia. Are you out there, Azri? Cheers. Um, <laughs> last Tuesday, so I went up to the top of Mount Wellington, which is the local word is Kunanyi. It looms over Hobart City. I don't know if you've been up there, you drive up there. It takes ages. It's really high. And I'm going to read some sort of like poemy things right now. At the top of Gunanyi, granite spoke to us as we fell silent, felt it outlast. What was it that hushed us, the landscape haunted by a history of forgetting or our own mortality echoing loudly across the scree? So there's these things that we notice about land, even if we don't know exactly what it means, what happened there. And that's kind of like what I feel about pelicans. So there was one more thing that I wanted to share with you that happened at Dark Mofo. Um, they had this thing called Siren Song that played every night, uh, well, every evening at sunset and every morning at sunrise. And there was like 500 speakers across the town all, all the buildings and, and what have you. And there was also a helicopter with a tsunami grade like um, speaker on the bottom of it, just like floating around um, down near the waterfront. And it was playing this kind of like haunting melody that some, you know, uh, sound artist has put together. Can't remember who, Soz. Um, jump on the Dark Mofo app, just check it out. Um, but it was really amazing, like every night when the sky is just turning pink, you, you heard this call 
and I wrote this thing about it. I was right about that place. I know it's winter, but still it's grey and colourless, apart from the sunset that bleeds across the sky as the siren sings. Called skywards, we have no explanation for her song, but the same hope draws our gaze upwards again and again. So what is the sound? Some heard a cry for help, but to me it was a refrain of hope. So those, those are the things I wanted to tell you. I thought maybe that... Um, I, th I think I thought maybe by now I would have learnt how to introduce myself in language, seeing as we heard um, our great nan um, talking, in it, you know, and it's very it's phonetic, you know, you've got to learn it from, from hearing it, it's oral. Um, but it hasn't happened yet, you know, it's going to be a long decolonisation process going on with what's happening here. Um, but... I don't know how those words sound yet from my mouth. I'm silent just like those quiet yellow fields where I grew up. And the combinations of letters don't feel quite right in my mouth as this that I speak my second language. You just heard an excerpt of a speech from Susie Anderson at this year's Amazing Babes event at the Emerging Writers Festival. For more information about Paolo Bala, Jasmeet Korsahi and Susie Anderson, please jump on our website 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Letigd. And the feature song for today's episode of Women on the Line is Cruel Charlie by the amazing Esther. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. I'm Marie Nord and I hope you can tune in again next time.